about you. I can do this in many areas of, of my life, and I'm often uh, thwarted trying, uh, but you might be someone who likes uh, to plan things perfectly. You like to plan perfection. It may have been that some of you, particularly some of the women here, were planning the perfect Christmas morning. Uh, from everything I saw on Facebook, it looks like some of you accomplished it. Everything was perfect, even pajamas matching. Or maybe some of you have planned the perfect date with your spouse. Some of you enjoy a good, perfect jog or uh, that perfect steak. But we often forget that we bring ourselves to whatever perfect event we planned. We bring ourselves to whatever perfect event we planned. Perhaps some of you experienced disappointment the last couple days. Everything looked perfect. It was, it was set to be perfect. On, on paper, it should have been perfect. But you didn't prepare for what you dreaded most. War. War broke out. And suddenly things go up in flames. I don't know why I had a Facebook friend who did this, but uh, uh, he had a kind of a dried out, kind of molding Christmas tree. So he, he took it in the backyard, he soaked it in gasoline, and he lit it on fire. And I don't know why he did that. It was, it was, it was pretty impressive. But sometimes that's what happens to our Christmas plans, right? Uh, they kind of go up in flames like a dried out, gasoline soaked Christmas tree. Perhaps it was a child's temper tantrum on opening the wrong present. It wasn't quite what they'd been hoping. Uh, perhaps it was prompted by the disappointment of a long labored over and yet still somehow undercooked meal. Perhaps it was that um, the wife didn't understand how meaningful the basketball game really was on Christmas Day. Or perhaps that it was that your teens were more interested in being at a friend's house than enjoying the picturesque scene you had prepared for them. Perhaps your hopes for the holiday burst like a balloon that gets too close to the candle. And you wonder, what just happened? How did we get here again? Where did this war come from? The book of James answers that question. It will tell us why our carefully laid plans erupt in flames. But James 4, verses 1 through 6, where we'll be focusing this morning, and, and, and uh, next week we'll be in James 4, verses 7 through, through 10. James 4, verses 1 through 6, isn't primarily about preventing conflict. See, conflict is a symptom of a much greater problem. Now, not all conflicts. We can have good, gracious, peace-filled conflicts. But we're, we're, we're talking about that selfish conflict, the war conflict. Conflict is a symptom of a much greater problem. Our idolatrous passion for pleasure. James wrote and focuses in 4, 1 through 6, so that we would see our idolatrous passion for pleasure, that we'd be humbled, and that we would go to God for grace. He wants to expose to us what is on the inside, this idolatrous passion for pleasure, so that we would be humbled, and so that we would go to God for grace. See, we need James 4, 1 through 6, because we like to think of ourselves as healthier than we are. And our spiritual condition needs to be exposed. The book of James is likely the first book written in, in the New Testament. 
James was Jesus's half-brother, son of Joseph and Mary. Now, James likely didn't, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus resurrected from the dead. But after believing, James uh, became an important leader in the early church. This letter of James, it was, it, it was written about 10 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. It circulated among recently planted Jewish churches scattered in, in Gentile cities around the Roman Empire. And these early churches were comprised of Jews who had, been, who had accepted Jesus not only as the long-awaited Messiah, but as God the Son become man, as the Son of David who suffered in the place of sinners so sinners could be forgiven and made right with God. Now, most of James' Jewish audience had not grown up in pagan households. They had grown up hearing God's word. They knew what God promised. They knew what God required of them. They knew what, what, the, ten, what the Ten Commandments were. They were well-versed in Proverbs. They knew what a wise life looked like. But as the book of James shows, many of them were not living in a consistent way, uh, in a way that matched up with their confession of Christ and of their repentance. They had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they were not living with him as Lord. And we can hear some of James' concern for these churches in some of the following verses, and I'll just kind of skim here because it shows us what concern he's driving towards as he gets into chapter 4. And really chapter 4 is where, is where his concern is um, becomes the most visible. So in James 1.22, we, we see some of his concern. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. His concern was that they were deceiving themselves about their spiritual health. A, 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 another similar passage is James 1.26-27. If anyone thinks he is religious, so his concern is they, they think they're religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that pure is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from, from the world. And some people have organized the book of James around those ideas about how we use our tongue and the care that we show to the helpless and our relationship with the world. It's that uh, relationship with the world that uh, James is going to focus on this morning. He's concerned that they have a religion that's worthless, James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith that, and, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He's concerned whether they have true saving faith. The uh, last time we were in uh, James, it was a while back, we looked in James 3.13-18, the definition of what real wisdom is. They love priding themselves, we're wise. Not only are we Jews who've been entrusted with God's word, we can imagine them saying, but we're the Jews entrusted with God's word who accepted the Messiah. We get this. Well, James in James 3.13 says, who is wise and understanding among you? It's not as good as it seems. And then he describes the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then he says in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He was characterizing wise people as those who make peace and who have this overflow of a harvest of righteousness. See, James knew that many in the churches he was writing to were not wise in understanding. They weren't making peace 
they weren't producing a harvest of righteousness. They pictured themselves, they viewed themselves, they looked in their mirror, and they could applaud themselves and say, we're wise. But their wisdom, James says, was earthly and spiritual demonic. It wasn't God's wisdom. They weren't as spiritually healthy as they thought. And so they needed to see that what feels normal, what, what, what feels normal, a commitment to our pleasure, it feels so normal. Commitment to pleasure was actually idolatrous. And it put them in opposition to God. And they needed to have exposed, and first we're going to look at, they needed to have exposed the presence of idolatrous passions. They needed to have exposed the presence of idolatrous passions. And that's what James is going to do first. He wants to show them there's something wrong with your hearts. Now, some of you know, in fact, one time uh, I was preaching. Some of you remember we saw a rodent that crawled across the rafters. Now, we used to have a real struggle with rats here at the church. We don't anymore, and I'm thankful for that. Praise the Lord. Uh, we used to lay out traps. We could capture rats. We could, we could kill rats, but we didn't get rid of the rats until we paid an exterminator to find all the entry points. So not surprisingly, we had to discover where the rats were coming from. How did the rats get in? If we're going to put an end to conflict, we must get to the source of our conflict. If we're going to put an end to our conflicts, we need to find what the source is. And, that, and that's what James does here in verse 1. To get us thinking about the source of conflict, James asks, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The first of those words, translated quarrels, could just as easily be translated wars or battles. And, and, and it is translated as, as that in scripture. What causes, what causes wars among you? What causes battles? And I think translating quarrels, uh, we, 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 we run the risk of minimizing it. And we, we, we hear about lovers' quarrels. It's just a, a small conflict like where they're going to eat dinner. Now, sometimes those turn big, uh, but we can just imagine. That it, but quarrels kind of is a minimizing word. The words battle or war is, is not a minimizing word. And the second word, fight, captures a little bit better some of the physical background of this word. You can imagine a fight, it's a military combat, or, 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 or it's a sporting contest. It's, it's wrestling, it's fighting, it's boxing. We must not minimize the hostility of these fights and quarrels when they become part of our normal existence. Maybe some of you have ongoing patterns of your life where just fighting and quarreling is normal. Well, James wants us to say, what is the source of that? The word for what causes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights can be translated from where? From where comes your fights? What is the source of these fights and quarrels? If you follow the river of your quarrels, of your fights upstream, where does it take you? What is the source? Now, as a parent, as I am, when you ask your kids, what caused this fight? You can predict what they think caused the fight, right? Or better yet, who caused the fight? Most often, our first instinct is, it was the other. It was my sibling, my brother, my sister. They did this. Well, we as adults aren't very different. Where did that war come from? Often we think was, the war was caused by what the other person said or did. 
Or sometimes, were they left unsaid or undone? Or we rationalize that the source of, of this conflict was, it was external pressure. It was the pressure we, we, we were feeling from, from, from unrealistic demands at work. It was the pressure put upon us by the holiday season and getting gifts for relatives we don't know. It was unrealistic expectations from the in-laws. Whatever that pressure is, we can blame the, outs, the outside pressure. Or we can put the blame on, on some other aspect of the, of the situation. It was maybe what we were feeling or, or that we were, oh, I was experiencing some physical pain, so I acted out that way. The television was so loud, that was why that war started. Or maybe we take the high ground. There, 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 there was a moral wrong that needed to be righted. There was maybe even a theological wrong that needed to, to be righted. So we, we, we threw down the gauntlet and went at it. We had no choice but to fight with our brother or sister. James' answer, though, to from where or what causes is not the circumstances outside of us, but the sinner within us. Is it not this, he continues in verse 1, that your passions are at war within you? That your passions are at war within you. The word passion can be translated also pleasure. Our passions are our desires for what brings us pleasure. Now, this word passion is the Greek word from which we, from which we get the word hedonism. So hedonism is a philosophical commitment to the pursuit of pleasure. I am going to do whatever gets me the most pleasure possible. And that's the, the, the root of that word hedonism is this Greek word here. It's, it, it's that passion for pleasure. James literally says that our passions are at war in your members. And it's difficult to be certain whether that battleground is the, is the individual with one's own pleasures warring in, 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 internally. I want this, but I also want this. So I'm internally conflicted. Or whether the battleground is the church, with my pleasures bringing me into conflict with your pleasures. Now, in the internal interpretation, you can imagine multiple people trying to drive the same car. Just imagine your front seat, multiple people kind of gripping for the steering wheel, causing you to reckon the lives of of others as your competing passions wrestle for the steering wheel. Or if it's passions among members, you can imagine more of a demolition derby scene where your commitment to a pleasure has caused you to point your car directly towards someone else who has their own commitment to pleasure and their car is directed towards you. Either way, the pursuit of pleasure ends in an inferno of words, right? So whether it's your in conflicting internal pleasures or uh, pleasures that are conflicting with other people's pursuit of pleasures. Now, notice James doesn't draw attention to what is the object of pleasure. Sometimes what brings us pleasure can be a good gift given by God. They can be good things, like an uninterrupted quiet time, a bite of food while it's still hot, every mom with young kids dream. An organized desk, a balanced budget, 
intimacy within marriage. All of those are good things, gifts given by God. But when our passion for our pleasure controls us more than our passion for God's pleasure, when our, when our passion for our pleasure controls us more than our passion for God's pleasure, we throw our car into drive, we slam on the gas, and often, and, and, and often we cruise along. Right? There, I mean, like often we can do that without even noticing we're doing it. We're just pursuing the pleasure that we want. We cruise along the highway of desire going 80 miles an hour until we see the ongoing traffic, oncoming traffic of someone else's pleasure. Right? And so my commitment to pleasure, sometimes even that might be a good thing. Oh, all of a sudden someone threatens it. And that good thing becomes a ruling thing. And so we... <laughs> We just head on to conflict. As many have said, a good desire becomes a bad desire when it becomes a ruling desire. A good desire, it gets twisted. It becomes a bad desire. It becomes something we crave too much. It becomes an idolatrous passion when it becomes a ruling desire, something we have to have. The, the passion for pleasure even if it is a good thing at core, is exposed as idolatrous when we sin to get pleasure or we sin when we don't get the pleasure we think we're due. So either we sin to get it or we sin when we don't get it. And that can manifest itself in so many ways. It can be in our internal obsessing over something, our self-focus, allowing ourselves to linger on the longings we wish were satisfied. It can be the way we sneak around and deceive others trying to get the things that we want. It can be our anxiety over whether we're going to get our way, the pride about what we deserve, the way that we gossip about others or the way that we slander others because we think that somehow this is going to help us get what we want, the way we can isolate ourselves the way we can be angry at other, the self-righteousness, all of that is, is ways that we go to war, right? Really, because we can go to war by isolating ourselves. Or sometimes it's more an outburst. Those are just some of the ways that we sin when we don't get the pleasure we think we're due or we try to get the pleasure we, we think we deserve. What are your idolatrous passions? Trace conflict back, and you'll find them. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. I, 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 almost, I almost worry if the whole world is being set up so that we have less conflict with people and our idolatrous passions are easier to hide, right? Because, it, because if you are able to be by yourself and just engage in a metaverse, if you're able just to spend more and more hours in front of Netflix or watching sports or any of the many, many things managing our cryptocurrencies, uh, um, whatever, what, you know, the more isolated we get, I think that the, we can hide some of this. You know, our whole lives can be spent without messing with other people, just trying to get the pleasures that we think we deserve. Well, praise the Lord, we aren't all isolated yet. Um, trace your conflict back. And you'll find what your idolatrous pleasures are. Rewind the eruption of molten anger. Look over the edge of your heart volcano and you'll find what your ruling desires are. You'll find the presence of your idolatrous passions. 
So that's what James wants them to see first, right? It's not just fights and quarrels. It really what's there is the presence of idolatrous passions. Next, he's going to show us what the consequences of those idolatrous passions are. So first he shows the presence. Now he's going to show what the consequences are in verses 2 and 3. And he does this to show that we have to do something about our idolatrous passions. The diseased fruit reveals that the tree is not healthy. We can't let our idolatrous passions just, just fester there. So first, James is going to focus on how, those, uh, how our pursuit of pleasure affects our horizontal relationships with one another. And then he's going to show how it affects our vertical relationships with God. So first, in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. So here's part of the horizontal consequences. The word for desires is the word we often translate lust. You lust and do not have, so you murder. It's a strong desire. It's a desire that that seeks to be satisfied, that works to get its own way. It's like a dog on a rope lunging after a squirrel, a squirrel just out of reach. And that lust is like, I'm going to get that squirrel. When our lust is not satisfied, the rope snaps And James says, we murder. Now, literal murder was probably not occurring in in, in the churches. And we think that because probably James would have addressed that issue earlier, right? If you've got churches where people are murdering one another, you don't open with, you guys should watch how you're speaking to one another. You should take care of strangers. You're going to be like, you guys got to stop killing each other. So it was probably not literal murder. Um. Perhaps, though, James has in mind uh, Jesus' teaching uh, uh, on anger from the Sermon on the Mount. And you can kind of hear an echo of that in this verse. Listen to uh, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's not just murder that God takes seriously. It is anger and pride and slander. The impulse to murder has its root in anger over not getting what you want. Right? It has its roots in anger over not getting what you want. James wants you to see the connection. The picture here is as ancient as the first child killing the second child, as Cain killing his brother. You want, you don't have, so you murder. The root of murder can grow in the soil of your idolatrous passions for pleasure. It's where it grows. So James continues in the second half of verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The word translated coveting has the idea of eagerly desiring, desiring, of committedly striving after something. Your affection is set on something and you pursue it. And when you fail to obtain it, when you don't succeed getting what you want, when your striving is thwarted, you fight and quarrel, you manipulate and make war. We all have this internal soldier waiting for the command to launch an offensive. It's just kind of waiting there. He's, He's got his gun in his hand. The only rules on the war path of desire are the lines our pride won't cross, right? The only rules are kind of our pride. There's certain things we won't say, we won't do, we won't go that far, we won't make ourselves look too bad. But besides that, there's a whole lot of hand-to-hand combat we are willing to participate in. We probably all have that line, like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to murder anyone, but, I, but I'll fight dirty, 
often against those that we love the most. There's consequences in our horizontal relationship, but also in our relationship with God. At the end of verse 2, James switches his attention from the horizontal to the vertical. You do not have because you do not ask. James describes someone who is unwilling to pray for what he is coveting. Now, now this is fascinating. And perhaps we we wonder, well, why don't they ask? James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Well, the obvious follow-up is like, well, we should ask for that then so we can get it. I think that what's going on there is that James understands the person doesn't ask because of the selfishness of his request, because of the wrongness of his pleasure, because that's an idolatrous pleasure. The person is not willing to submit this request to God because he knows the answer would be no, denied. See, not asking allows kind of a a facade of freedom kind of a pretend space where we can use whatever resources we think are ours to get our way. The person reasons, well, if I ask God, I'd have to submit the request to God. But keeping it private, not voicing it, keeping it internal, I can kind of, I can, I can imagine a circle of autonomy. So let's see if I can get my pleasure without praying just using the resources I already have. And maybe you have a portion of your life you kind of have have boxed off. You would never ask God for that really. So you know it's just about you. The unwillingness to pray reveals the person knows their requests are selfish, requests that God wouldn't answer. But there are more problems than the absence of prayer. There's also the problem of unanswered prayers, and we see that in verse 3. This is more of the horizontal effects, the horizontal consequences of these idolatrous passions. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. While some refuse to ask, others ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The first person knows he's selfish, but isn't aware of how dependent he truly is. You know, he thinks he can independently manage us. He doesn't need to ask God. The second person knows he's dependent, but isn't aware how selfish he is. He doesn't really understand this is, this is just all about me. He brings his request to God, not for God's glory, but to satisfy his passions. He wants God to use God's power to satisfy his lust. He's kind of like a dying, feeble uh, uh, alcoholic on his deathbed, asking for someone to pour him one last drink. Well, you shouldn't have that drink. But he has to ask for someone. So it's, it's selfish, but not good for him. Now, God graciously doesn't answer this prayer because he doesn't give what idolatrous pleasures beg. God says no, not because he's stingy, but because he's good. He gives good gifts. We looked at that in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God gives good gifts for us to enjoy. He's generous, but he won't give his children knives to play with, no matter how much they crave them. Unlike parents in a grocery store, God doesn't abdicate his good authority because of our embarrassing demands for cheap toys and junk food. God won't satisfy us with the poisons we long to drink. 
The consequences of our idolatrous passions on our relationships with others and our relationship with God reveal such brokenness and really isolation, right? Puts us at war with others, kind of blocking out God, either trying to do things on our own or selfishly asking for him for what he can't give us that we ought to turn to God for grace. Who wants to live at war with others and without God answering our prayers? If we realized how dependent we were, we'd be like, that sounds horrible. But James is just getting started. Really, he gets more serious. He has yet to expose how dangerous our idolatrous passions really are. And that's where he goes next in verses 4 and 5. He's going to show us the danger of idolatrous passions. He wants to see the seriousness of them, the severity of them, kind of the truth behind them. What is really going on with these idolatrous passions? So he shows the danger of these idolatrous passions. James exposes what our idolatrous passion for pleasure really is. It's spiritual, adult, spiritual adultery. In verse 4, James blasts away at our walls of self-righteousness. He blasts away at all the excuses we could throw up with cannonballs of truth. You adulterous people. He's not mincing any words here. You adulterous people. Previously, James had referred to the Christians as brothers, even as dear brothers. But now he calls them adulteresses, unfaithful wives. The Old Testament prophets often made the charge of adultery toward hard-hearted Israel, who betrayed God to worship at the feet of wood and stone and gold idols and, and who trusted in other nations. Now, there's so many examples of this in Scripture. Just one is Jeremiah 3.20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Israel repeatedly betrayed God to get what they selfishly craved. Safety, success, control, physical pleasure, things not even bad in themselves. But they pursue these at altars of their own choosing, whether Canaan Baal or the empire of Babylon. They traded the worship owed God for who he is, to false gods, to gain what they wanted, to be in control. Really, this is part of the problem of not being willing to bring our request to God when we know that things, when, when, it's, when we know we're asking for something we shouldn't have. When we don't ask God, and when we bring requests, we, he will answer. He'll say no to. We go to other gods to try to get them. The good thing becomes a ruling thing, and so we offer up worship to false gods. In a sense, they, they metaphorically snuck out of God's household to find their pleasure in another temple. But the adultery of James' Christian audience and her own adultery is more subtle. See, being the good monotheist we are, we don't pray at another temple. In a sense, we stay home with God while our hearts wander after all kinds of inordinate, ruling, idolatrous passions, pleasure, control, comfort, 
safety, security, success, respect, knowledge, all which can be gifts from God and which all can be twisted by us. Our betrayal can be subtle. We labor to get what we want while ignoring what he wants. We satisfy our fantasies instead of seeking his kingdom. We would rather rummage for delight in garbage cans than feast from God's hand. We seek to keep these worship affairs secret all the while singing on Sunday. And our heart is this hotbed of idolatrous desires. This is the danger of our spiritual adultery. Verse 4, James continues to expose the danger of our, of our idolatry. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The world here doesn't refer to the people in the world. It's not talking about being friends with those who don't know Christ. But it's friendship with the system of the world. It's the world's idolatrous pursuit of pleasure. It's, it's, it's committing, it's commitment to getting what it wants. It's the world's way of doing life. It manifests itself differently at different times, but the world always rejects. It always rejects. No matter how it manifests, it, the world always rejects dependent, humble, loving obedience of the one true God. The world always rejects dependent, humble, loving obedience of the one true God. See, friendship in the ancient world was more than an acquaintance. This is my friend Bob or whatever. One commentator writes of friendship. It describes it as a lifelong pact between people with shared values and loyalties. Friendship in the ancient world is about allegiance and it's about loyalty. This is my friend, almost partner. Friendship is saying, I'll join with you. I'll join with you in your pursuit of pleasure, control, security, comfort, success, peace. I'll join with you, not just in admitting the, the desirability of these things, but in valuing them, them so much, I'll sin to get them. I will partner with you in exalting them and sinning to get them. I'll exalt these, these, these in themselves good things to ruling status. I'll do life the world's way to get what the world wants. That's what friendship with the world is. This kind of commitment. The world really doesn't care at what shrine you worship as long as in your heart you're number one. Really, in a sense, the world system is perfectly fine if you're here on Sunday morning. As long as in your heart you're number one. If you're honest, or maybe not if you're honest, maybe some of you are honest. I'm not saying that some of you aren't honest, but not all of you think this, but friendship with the world may not honestly sound so horrible. It may not honestly sound so foreign as you wish it did. Because it honestly sounds like the way we do a lot of life. We want and get, right? We can often do that as first thing in the morning. We want and get, we want and get. Sometimes it's want and don't get, and then we fight. But basically, we go back then to wanting and getting. For some of you, life is just manipulating your next desire. It's just getting your next want satisfied. But for our good, James exposes this friendship with the world for what it really is. These are some, some, some of the hardest verses in, in the New Testament. 
you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It is hatred toward God. It is war with God. Choosing the world system is aligning ourselves with those who are opposed by God. It's to take off our uniform, and I don't know if you were a kid, you had little green soldiers and little gray soldiers. And the green soldiers, at least in America, were good. The gray soldiers were not good. You can imagine that little green soldier taking off its green plastic outer and saying, I'm going to put on the gray soldier's outfit. That's what enmity with God is. This is what friendship with the world is. It's to take off the uniform and put on that of the enemy. It's to crawl across the battlefield, risking all to go into the enemy's trenches. It's to rally around another flag. It's to point our guns against God's kingdom. It's to join in this attempt of a coup, a coup nearly as long as humanity, to build the Tower of Babel, to exalt ourselves against God. That is what enmity against God is. And James exposes that friendship with the world is enmity because we don't want to see friendship with the world for what it is. It feels so natural at times. We kind of see it more as a side hustle we got going on, an area of life where we're dependent, where we don't have to offer worship. This is just my idolatrous pleasures. See, we can be irrationally comfortable serving in two armies. We don't like to see ourselves as green or gray. We like to say, well, I've got some of both going on. It's kind of more of a model camouflage. We don't like to imagine ourselves having two masters. That's why Jesus rebukes in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. We assume it's possible to wear both uniforms, to love the world and love the Father. But the Apostle John in 1 John 2, 15 to 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Loyalty to the world's way is to have another master. Loyalty to the world's way is to be devoid of the Father's love. Loyalty to the world's way is to be at war with God. So war with God, I I don't doubt and I hope, sounds unthinkable to you. It sounds horrible. And yet friendship with the world often feels so natural to us. It's like putting on your favorite well-worn hat or grabbing a warm sweatshirt in these cold Southern California days. We kind of just fall in line without thinking about it. There's sure there's, there's, there's lines we think we don't want to cross, but ultimately we're willing to march to the same idolatrous passions that the world is willing to march to. So perhaps you, you struggle as you listen. You know your desires get too much of your attention. You know you put too much effort toward achieving them. And then you struggle because you're, but they're not even bad desires. As you join in the world's pursuits, you're you're paying your bills. You're faithful to your spouse. You go to church. You maybe serve. These these words like adultery and, and enmity, kind of hard when you see yourself as basically okay. But at the same time, by God's grace, you know something's off. And you're trying to do the impossible. Like, well, actually, I've got the green and gray. I've got two masters. I love the Father, but I, I love the world. So how, 
So how does your pursuit of these, even these good things at times, mark you as participating in, in enmity against God? Right? How can these good things become so idolatrous? Well, like, like, almost like what's the problem here? And James explains it in verse 5. And really, it's beautiful, and I think that there's hope here. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? See, James doesn't uh, quote a specific Old Testament text here. He's likely referring to passages about God's jealousy. Passages like Exodus 20 verse 5. You shall not bow down to other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Another verse is excuse me, Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God has zeal for himself. God has given life to us. He breathed life into Adam. Genesis 2-7 describes, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God has made our spirits to dwell in us. We are made in his image. We're different from animals. We're uniquely capable of love and, and worship. God, who has given life to you, righteously yearns, for your worship to be directed toward him. He desires and commands your affection and your obedience to submit to him, but to love him. He created you, and you are to turn your affection and your love to him because he made you. He put that spirit within you, and now he's jealous for it. He's like, that's my spirit. Not, not God the Spirit, but that life in you, I gave that life to you so that you would love me. This isn't because God is needy. This isn't because God needs your worship. He has been eternally satisfied as the triune God in eternal worship. So he overflows in love, creating you so that you have the joy of worshiping him, so that you glorify him by worshiping him. A husband would be wicked if he were content with his wife finding pleasure in the bed of another man, right? Like how disgusting of a man would that be? And God would be wrong and ultimately not God if he did not yearn over the jealousy that we give to other gods. God will not be satisfied with anything less than 100% of our love. Matthew twenty two thirty seven says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So James wants to startle those who are divided in their love. And I've been startled by the passage. I want to be more startled. Adultery, friendship with the world, enmity, hostility, war with others, war with God. We are not okay. Whether we realize it or not, we are in a dungeon. And these bars are formed, the bars of this dungeon are formed by our own idolatrous passions. 
and we turn from one passionate pursuit of pleasure to another. We look out another barred window for what will not satisfy. We put our hand through the bars grasping for whatever the next is, another meal, another television show, another zero on our savings account. Whatever it is we're grasping for, the pleasure, the praise of men. We put our hands to the bars grasping. And all the while, God righteously yearns for our required worship. But we are enslaved by our own idolatrous passions. But because God is gracious, there is a solution to our idolatrous passions. And that's where we're going to look now. So far, we looked at the presence of these idolatrous passions. We've looked at the consequences, both uh, horizontal and vertical, the danger of these idolatrous passions, what's really true about ourselves. And now, by God's grace, the solution to these idolatrous passions in verse 6. See, God's righteous jealousy, like this is where I said it's a good thing. There's, there's, There's hope in his righteous jealousy. He liberates those for whom he has grace. James 4, 6, 8, but he gives more grace, greater grace. God's free and undeserved grace chooses to go after the adulterous spouse living in the hovel of another man to bring her home. That is what God does. God's grace goes across the enemy lines. He grabs that soldier by the backpack. Those who have betrayed him, he pulls them out of that rat-infested and disease-filled trench, and he brings them home. He says, no, you're coming with me. That's what God's grace does. God's grace is greater than our betrayal. But God cannot simply wink at our sins. He cannot dismiss our sins. He must satisfy the righteous demands of his justice. And he does that by pouring out the wrath that we deserve on his son for our adultery and for our betrayal and for our idolatrous passions. Jesus Christ took our place. And that is what is going on on the cross. That is what happened Jesus Christ took the place for our idolatrous passions so that our betrayal can end, so that our idolatry can be over, so that our adultery can be ended. That is how gracious God is so that our, the wrath that we deserve is satisfied by God on his own son. And we know that it is satisfied because Jesus is resurrected from the dead and that he is alive and that we are waiting for him to return. So how are we to respond to this greater grace of God, this more grace? What is the solution to our idolatrous passions? I've pointed it is in Jesus Christ, but how do we access this greater grace? James 4, 6b, the second part says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The worst thing that you can do today is ignore the presence of our idolatrous passions. To ignore the consequence of our idolatrous passions. And to ignore the danger of our idolatrous passions. Do not ignore what James is saying. Will you be humbled about the way you followed these passions? Will you stop loving, leaving your creator to love his creation? Will you confess that you betrayed your king when you chose the world's way of wanting and getting and fighting? We're going to learn more about what repentance looks like next week in James 4, uh, verses 7 through 10, and then we'll, we'll get back to the Gospel of Luke with Pastor Joshua. But today, there's enough here in James 4, 6. 
really 7 through 10 is going to flesh 4, 6 out. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Today will you say to the Lord, I have idolatrously pursued pleasure instead of pleasing you. Have grace on me, God, who has more grace. Will you say, God, have grace on me? God has more grace. He will not turn away from the humble, but he will oppose the proud. He is hostile toward the proud. Maybe some of you here this morning do not know the Lord. I know some of you don't. If you continue in your commitment to pursue idolatrous pleasures, you are part. Now, now it's not only those who, who don't know the Lord who can do this. Maybe by God's grace you can see an area of your life where you're doing this. James was writing to confessing Christians. But if you continue in your commitment to pursue idolatrous pleasures, you are proud. You're foolishly clinging to the bed of your diseased and wasting away lover. You're cowering in the filthy trenches of God's enemies. Get out of there. Run. Say, I am done with this. I'm tired of pursuing my idolatrous pleasures. I don't want to stay there. Lord, give me grace. God would have you turn away from your idolatrous pleasures and turn towards him. That's what he wants. Run to him. Don't risk God's judgment. God is much grace for the humble. It's possible that even this day, even today, you may have conflict. As you reflect on maybe a recent conflict or on your next conflict, we can follow the path that James has for us. And you don't have to write down the, these questions. I can email them out. But just follow along these verses. You can ask yourself, as you think about your next conflict, now don't plan your next conflict after it happens. Did I pursue an idolatrous pleasure? What was I willing to sin to get? And there's most conflicts, you have an idolatrous pleasure, something you sin to get. Second, how did pursuing that pleasure affect my relationship with others, my relationship with God? What were the consequences in our horizontal and our vertical? Third, what did pursuing that pleasure reveal about my relationship with God? Does it reveal some spiritual adultery? Does it reveal a friendship with the world and, and enmity? Then how would God have me respond? And how will God respond to me? We know how God wants you to respond. He gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Don't persist, but be humble. And God is more grace. Let's pray.